Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Wansputter, and this afternoon I have the privilege of once again sharing the company of Reverend Father Bernard Utley, OSB, pastor at Our Lady of Victory Church in London, Ontario, Canada, and uh, our, our regular show guest, of course, for The Spiritual Life. So, Father, uh, welcome again to The Spiritual Life, and thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, now, ju- just a, a little bit of um, housekeeping before I do our uh, advertisements. We had, we had a little bit of feedback on this, so I just wanted to clarify something. Uh, when I, uh, you'll hear me throughout the show uh, refer to Father as Father Bernard rather than referring to him as Father Utley, and I just wanted to clarify for people that we're not getting all Novus ordo here and uh, referring to priests by uh, first names, but when it comes to addressing a religious priest, uh, uh, Bernard is Father Bernard's religious name, so it's proper to refer to him as Father Bernard. And uh, Father, I wonder if you could, for our listeners, just uh, give us a a quick sentence or two on what the significance Mm -hmm. is of uh, of a religious name mm-hmm. uh, be given to a member of religious community, such as Benedictines. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, the custom of receiving a new religious name is, I mean, relatively new in the history of the Catholic Church, but perhaps uh, I think it dates back to the 1500s, uh, where religious, when they become a novice, they would receive uh, a name of a saint to take as their patron saint. And also receiving a new name is um, really symbolic that you have died to the world and that you are born again in this religious life. Um, so it's significant in that way that uh, it symbolizes that you're no longer that person that you were in the world and you are this, this new man. Uh, in fact, uh, for Benedictines, when they take final vows, which have been traditionally solemn vows, it was always considered in tradition uh, by the fathers of the church that when, when someone makes those final vows, it's almost like they've been rebaptized. Um, they, even though we don't believe in the sacrament, you know, being rebaptized sacramentally, but it's believed that the effects would be that all your temporal punishment would be would be uh, remitted, and you would start fresh. You would start again because that consecration of yourself to God is so um, so perfect. So so. Uh, complete that you would start again and that name uh really signifies a new life and that's why we call religious by the their religious name and i prefer to be called father bernard just because first of all i love saint bernard of clairvaux whom whom i uh named after but also that it it does remind me i'm a religious uh and i've left my old life right well thank you for that father now um the Spiritual Life is brought to our listeners by our network sponsor, Audible.com. So if you're a bookworm, like all of us are at the Restoration Radio Network, but a little too busy to devote hours at a time to reading, then why not visit Audible.com and check out the immense selection of downloadable audiobooks to your computer or smartphone. Right now, if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio, you can get a free 30-day 
no obligation trial membership, and you'll receive one free audiobook to try out their service. There's no complications. There's an easy to use, intuitive, audible application for your device and great book titles. So go to audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio. That's A U D I B L E trial.com forward slash restoration radio. And of course, uh, all restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on www.restorationradionetwork.com and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can follow the work of True Restoration on all the uh, well-known social media channels, uh, and you can uh, access those by going to truerestoration.org. And of course, although our sponsor helps us out with some of our expenses, uh, our shows are uh, underwritten by True Restoration as well. And um, we do uh, have annual radio subscriptions at uh, various levels, depending on your means, that uh, also help us uh, pay for all the expenses uh, of running a radio program like this. So we uh, encourage uh, listeners, if you find our shows worthwhile, to take out a subscription or, if you can, uh, make a donation to support our work. Now... um, Father, we've been uh, discussing, in the the last episode, we discussed the Trinity, and we've been working our way through uh, Father Lean's book on the Holy Ghost. But uh, given that it's Lent, I know that uh, you wanted to switch gears a little bit for this episode and uh, talk about uh, our Lord's Passion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that since we are in the season of Lent, and since Lent's culmination is Holy Week, and since the heart of Holy Week is the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's uh, more fitting that for this episode that falls in Lent that we focus on the passion of our Divine Savior and how it, how His cross uh, fits in our lives and what parts we have to play in His passion. And then I thought that for Easter Sunday, which is supposed to be our next scheduled show, that will go back and continue with Father Lean's book, The Holy Ghost, because which we have been going through, because the next topic that I want to cover in that book is sanctifying grace. I think this is a much more logical and appropriate order of subjects to discuss, because sanctifying grace is really the life that our Lord came to give us. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Then this is really what his resurrection uh, also means for us spiritually, the life of grace. So there, there, there is a law of life. Something must die in order for something to live. And there's a law of Christianity, the law of Christ, that you will not get to the resurrection unless there is a crucifixion. And that the more we die to self, the more we can be filled with God's life. And this is Our Lord repeated this over and over in various ways. Unless the seed falling into the earth die, itself remaineth alone. It will not bear fruit. So that is why we will talk first about the passion and death of Christ and how his cross fits into our spiritual life. And for our guide in these matters, I want again to use my my old favorite spiritual writer, Father Edward Lean again. Because if there is one topic that was very dear to Father Lean... Uh, it was the doctrine of the cross. 
In fact, he wrote a whole book uh, about it called Why the Cross? And this happened to be his own personal favorite of all the books that he wrote. He also wrote many other chapters in different books on the topic, and I'll refer to those as well. Uh, so in today's episode, there's simply no way that we can summarize all the truths which Father Lean discusses on the subject, but uh, we will just briefly and loosely lose, use his works as a guide, and I will quote from him from time to time. Well, uh, I think that makes uh, good sense, Father, and that uh, kind of segues us, uh, or perhaps a good way to lead into uh, the the topic is uh, if we could answer, or if I could get you, Father, to answer a question that was posted to our Facebook page uh, by one of the listeners uh, that uh, came up with this uh, a bit of a quandary, I suppose, uh, that he is struggling with after mm-hmm. listening to our previous two episodes. Um, and I'll just uh, read for our listeners the full question, and uh, then mm-hmm. uh, we can discuss that, Father. So uh, the the listener uh, posted uh, this question. He wrote, Having just listened to the Spiritual Life Part 1, I am troubled by an old bugaboo. I hope that someone can direct me to an answer. After all the rhapsodizing of Father Lean's meditations of God's inexhaustible love, the unimaginable totality of God's love, one cannot then understand the apparent cruelty of hell, the total withdrawal of this unlimited love of God from a poor sinner, finally, after the short time of earthly life. How many of us sinners would have, would have many human lives in which to repent? So how to reconcile the indescribable love of God with its complete withdrawal from a soul who dies in mortal sin? This is a point that Protestants will always make, and honestly, I don't know what to tell them. One falls into deep scrupulosity over this question, knowing that one can never be holy in God's eyes. When does the perfect mercy become the perfect justice? One can see God is very cruel in creating souls who are not going to make it to heaven, predestined, in fact, for hell. As Jesus said, it would have been better for them if they had never been born. But I don't remember asking to be born. Does anyone? How have we found ourselves in this high-stakes gamble way over our heads? If anyone can help me with this, I would really appreciate it. This issue has troubled my faith for my whole life. Uh, one of Father Lean's books is called Why the Cross. I would ask, why the everlasting fire? If God is goodness and mercifulness himself, I am sincere here and not playing with polemics. Thank you for your good work. So um, I, I think it's a good question, Father. I, I think it's also a question that's very um, uh, common in today's age and something very uh, reflective mm-hmm. of the milieu that we've all been raised in. And, and it, it struck me that it's the type of question that may not have necessarily been asked a hundred or a few hundred years ago. And to me, anyway, it seems that the in the modern world, the idea or the definition of love has been really changed to something that's just a mere kindness, and that's why you get things like the uh, you know these modern ideas of how to raise children that you should not discipline them because that's not loving to discipline a child. Whereas mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it seems to me that real love actually is to discipline the child because otherwise they're not. Uh, given the, uh, the the tools they need to handle life. So um, 
maybe we can start if you comment on my thoughts, and then we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I, I agree with you. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll deal with some of those topics later on when I talk about the cross. But I, I personally thought it was a very good question, um, profound, and it brought up profound questions, I think, and ones that may never be answered to everyone's satisfaction. But I think there are answers that shed light on the problem. Uh, I definitely agree with your assessment, though. What's interesting is that even though this question may not seem to have much to do with the cross, in fact, it does overlap. And the thing about discussing any topic of the faith, the Catholic faith, is that it brings up so many other subjects. Every truth of the Catholic faith is intimately connected to every other truth. It's a a beautiful web of truth. And one truth complements another truth and supports it and sheds light upon it. And I've thought a long time about this question, and I didn't just want to give a quick answer, superficial answer, but to go into it a little. And and, um, in fact, I I think these questions actually lead us to the cross as well. So I just wanted to begin at the beginning, namely with the facts uh, that we know from Revelation, and then discuss how we can possibly reconcile them. First, we know that, okay, God exists. He is infinitely holy. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely wise. He's, he's infinitely merciful and infinitely just, and he's infinite love itself. And the second fact is that we, that a fact that we know from Revelation, that despite the fact that this God, who is love itself, and despite the fact that he desires the salvation of all men, it is a fact that hell does exist. He told us it does and that many souls will end up there for all eternity, despite the fact that our Lord has loved them enough to die for them. So these are the facts, and then we try to reconcile them. And the first thing I would say to the questioner and to our listeners is this, is in studying our faith, whenever we come up towards an apparent contradiction, the first thing to realize is that it is only an apparent contradiction. One truth never really contradicts another truth. It is merely that we may not, with our with our limited, uh, finite human minds, totally comprehend how they work together and complement each other. But we must, we, we have to form uh, an a priori judgment, which means before the fact, before anything else, we must be entirely convinced that the contradiction is only apparent and is not based in reality. And if, 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 if ever an apparent contradiction leads us to any temptation against the faith, or any, any temptation against God, it try, if it tries you in any way, the, the, the most practical advice I would give is that that is when you have to make an act of faith. When you are tried, you have to make an act of faith. And it says, you have to say, Lord, I believe both truths because you have revealed them, although I, I may not understand how they work together. So you have to believe that God loves us, that God is love, and yet some souls go to hell. Those are the two facts that we have to both accept. So the, I think the easiest answer, and perhaps the only real answer to the dilemma, if God is love, why is there hell? Why is there everlasting fire? And why do souls go there? Is this, and that may sound like hedging a question, just repeating it, but that if a soul goes to hell, and many souls do, or will, that this fact in no way contradicts the fact that God is all love, that somehow the fate of this or that damn soul has to be entirely justified. 
and that God never sends a soul to hell unless that soul has truly deserved that fate and that punishment. And that is part of God's justice. Now, we should never gainsay God's judgment. He will do what is absolutely just and what is absolutely actually the most merciful thing for that soul. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I just want to take a few lines of the question and break it apart and briefly comment on each point, because sometimes in a question like this, there's so many subtopics and there's so many suppositions, uh, uh, presuppositions that you have to take apart first. And he says this, he says, after all the rhapsodizing of Father Lean's meditations on God, of God's inexhaustible love, the unimaginable totality of God's love, one cannot then understand the apparent cruelty of hell, the total withdrawal of this unlimited love of God from a poor sinner, finally, after the short time of earthly life. I think, first of all, we, we have to understand that it is not God who removes his inexhaustible love from the damned soul, from the soul that dies in mortal sin. It is that soul who has freely chosen to remove itself from God's love. And God is just respecting the free will of man. God will not force a soul to love him. Because love, in order to be worth anything, really, has to be freely given. No one wants a forced love. No one wants... I want you to love me, so I'm going to put a gun to your head. No, it's free. But there are consequences if you don't. Everything in the spiritual life, and this is, this is a good point, that everything in the spiritual life is determined by the love we have or do not have for God. Love determines the degree of our sanctity. I mean, true love, true charity for God. It determines the degree of our sanctity, and it will determine the fate of our soul after death. We are saved or damned according to what we love. So according to the state in which the moment of death finds our soul, we will be attracted and drawn to that which we have chosen to love during life. Is it God or is it self apart from God? If we love God, truly, if we love God, we shall ultimately possess God. We shall be saved. It's basically that simple. If we have divine charity in our hearts, then we will go to God who is charity. Love will be attracted to love itself, and we will be drawn towards God. And if we love God perfectly at the moment of death, we shall go straight to heaven, into the eternal joy of the vision of God in the company of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Blessed Mother and the angels and the saints. But suppose we have chosen to love self apart from God by unrepented mortal sin. That means that we have deliberately chosen some uh, created thing, some pleasure, some person, some experience in preference to him. With sufficient reflection and full consent of our will. And then we died in that state. Then naturally we shall be drawn away from God. We chose self. And so we will get self. We shall possess self to the exclusion of God eternally. We shall be forever damned. And that is really the essence of hell, the loss of God. And it cannot be otherwise. So to die in mortal sin, impenitent, is to finally uh, reject the source of all goodness, the source of all happiness. And really, this merits that goodness to be removed finally and absolutely from us. So at the end, everyone will get what they wanted. Everyone will get what they want in this life. And some people just don't want God. 
the end of the day. Some people just don't want him. And so God will not give himself to those who don't want him. And I think we tend to think that this whole idea of a soul going to hell after having died in mortal sin is, is more or less an arbitrary judgment on the part of God. That if we think that if God really wanted to, he could just let such a soul into heaven. But this isn't so. Uh, uh, such a soul who dies without the love of God in their soul cannot, cannot, cannot live in heaven. It does not have sanctifying grace, which is a participation in God's own divine life. Sanctifying grace, which we'll deal with another uh, show, but is life everlasting begun in this life? Heaven is union with God. And this soul who has, has died unrepentant has no union with God. How could it go to heaven? And what is God to do? Force the soul to love him? Is that just? Is that fair to all the other souls who sacrificed themselves during their mortal life in order to love God above all things? Is that true love if God forces a soul to love him? What kind of love is a forced love? God wants to be freely chosen by us. If a soul does not want him, he will not force himself upon it. And so at death, and this is the key, at death, our choice is cemented in the direction we have chosen. There's no more choices after death. We have made our choice, and that it is fixed with no opportunity to change our mind. And that is what this whole life is. It's, we are constantly vacillating back and forth and changing and sinning and repenting and falling. And then when death comes, it puts the stamp of finality. You have chosen God with your life. And some, some of us get so many chances. And when we die, we'll look back and we'll see the countless chances and opportunities that God has given us to choose him. And we haven't. And so um, sometimes we may think, why couldn't God just infuse grace into that soul against its will? Why couldn't he just change it, uh, convert it? Uh, against its will, you know, God perhaps could, but then God wouldn't be just, for one. No one would get what they deserved. There would be no reward and punishment and no ultimate justice if God forced those damned souls into heaven. There has to be ultimate justice for our sins. Why be good, then, if everyone gets a pass? If everyone wins, why even try? You know, instead of no child left behind, it's no soul left behind. What happens then? It means that everything in this whole life, every teaching of our Lord would be dumbed down and would be useless. Why did he come to teach us a way of life if it didn't matter if you followed or not? He's wasting his time. And so there'd be no motivation to love God and to be obedient to him if everyone was saved. I think the tendency is to think of heaven. Uh, it. it we're dumbing down heaven as well. The tendency is to think of heaven as simply a, a place, you know, a, a, an earthly paradise where we'll just walk around and, and we'll enjoy the beautiful scenery and we'll have good food and great fellowship with the saints. And yes, you know, that may be part of it. We might have those things. We're going to have all those good things. But the heaven is essentially a very close union with God. It is, a, it is the beatific vision and possession of God himself in the most closest unity of love so that you will be plunged into God's own inner life 
of ecstatic joy and happiness. So if the soul has no union with God on earth, how can it blossom into a union with him in all eternity? Heaven begins in this life where it doesn't begin at all. And some souls, like I said, simply don't want God. So he's not going to force them into heaven when they don't want him. The, the, the path to God, who is the supreme good, must be the path of goodness. And, and not just, we're not just talking about ethical and natural goodness, you know, someone's a good citizen, but supernatural goodness, supernatural grace, that's what leads to God. And as soon as I, 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 I read this question, it occurred to me something that uh, Father Lean wrote. Uh, one of the first things I, I ever read in his book, um, Progress Through Mental Prayer, it was written, it was his first book and written in 1935. And on the first page, this is what he says, and I'm going to quote him, that, and I'll sum it up quickly here, that Father Lean says that an unholy soul would not be happy in heaven, that that would be the cruelest thing for God to do, to force that damn soul into his presence. And let me quote Father Lean. And this gives us insight to the whole nature of sanctity, uh, and again, why we need the cross as well. But Father Lean says this, quote, St. Paul, writing to the Christian converts, addresses them as persons called to be saints. It is clear from this mode of address that in the eyes of the apostle, the vocation of every Christian as such is that he be a saint. To the apostle's mind, this calling, once one has been baptized, is ineluctable. To evade it to the end is not merely to risk, but actually to incur everlasting unhappiness. Startling as this thought is, there is not needed much reflection to see that its truth cannot be gainsaid. Nothing unsaintly can find place in heaven. What is definitely and by irrevocable choice unsaintly is forever excluded from the presence of God. And this is necessarily so by the very nature of things. It is not in consequence of a stern, arbitrary, and if he chose, revocable decree of banishment issued by God that the unholy soul is banned from heaven. The unholy soul simply could not exist in heaven. It would shrivel up in a, in a veritable agony. It could no more exist there than could a dry twig in a blazing furnace. Light is not more incompatible with darkness than the sanctity of God with what is unholy. It is the infinite purity, the perfect sanctity of God that makes heaven impossible for the unsaintly. Since eternal happiness depends on sanctity, it is important to have a very clear notion of what it consists in and of the way by which it is attained, unquote. So again, we have to have this exalted view of God, or you won't have an exalted view of heaven. You won't see how, how really the nature of the essence of what hell is, is the loss of God more than anything. You have to have an exalted view of God. God is infinite purity and holiness. I think that's one, one of the, the, the key problems with today. We don't understand how holy God is, and that heaven is not just uh, walking around and, and having a, you know, just, a, just a banquet, just a, a party in heaven. It is close, intimate union with holiness itself, and that's why nothing undefiled can enter heaven. And, and Father, uh, if I can just jump in, it seems to me that that, ex that also sure. explains the existence of purgatory, 
because exactly. uh, gold that still has some stain of sin couldn't bear to enter the presence of God with any of that on it. And I think I've read some spiritual writers who say that souls who need to go to purgatory, they'll like joyfully jump into purgatory almost before going Absolutely. to heaven because they wouldn't that they couldn't exist in, in heaven without that cleansing and purgatory. Absolutely. Right. And purgatory is actually one of the greatest uh, inventions of God's mercy for us, that most of us will leave this life, uh, unfortunately, will leave this life not prepared to enter directly into heaven. Um, so as Catholics, again, this is we have in our faith an exalted view of what God is and who God is, an exalted view of heaven, um, and, and it brings out the necessity of purgatory, like you said. Um, um, there's something else I was going to say. I lost my train of thought there. But let me let me go on to another point that the listener brings up that I want to comment on is that he said, knowing that one can never be holy in God's eyes. And notice that that is not true. That is not true. Grace makes us holy and pleasing in God's sight. Uh, we learn that in our catechism that the grace makes us children of God and heirs to heaven. So we believe as Catholics that our Lord's sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his most precious blood is literally powerful enough to make us holy, make us like God, make us objectively pleasing to him. We become holy. And, and it's not just we're being cloaked with this legal fiction of holiness. You know, God just looks upon us and says, well, I'm just not going to see your sins, and I see Jesus' holiness, and I'm not going to look at your, your, your sinfulness like a, like, a, like a coat of paint over a, rust, uh, you know, a piece of uh, rusted metal. Or, or uh, I remember Father, Tra- Father Jakarta once using the analogy of uh, you know, snow covering a, a pile of manure. You know, no, that's the whited sepulcher that our Lord was fighting against, that he actually, his grace actually makes us objectively holy. And um, this is really the heart of, uh, of Catholicism, is that what we do, uh, this is what a saint is, uh, objectively holy in God's presence. And if the saint is perfect, um, we'll go straight to heaven. Uh, we'll, we'll enter into that, that uh, presence of God. I think what it, com- what it comes down to, what it comes down to is that why people reject hell is that the world wants... Uh, wants to be accepted by God as it is, without changing. And God is supposed to accept everyone the way they are, even their evil deeds, their sinfulness. Just accept me as I am. But God cannot accept us as we are. God is holy, and he can only truly love what is truly holy. He can only be intimately united with someone who is holy. And, and that's why he died for us. That's in order to sanctify us in truth to truly change us, to make us holy and pleasing in the sight, to become new creatures in Christ. What the world wants is they want Christ without the cross. They want him to come down from the cross. They don't want to be changed. Another thing that the listener, the questioner uh, wrote, he said, and this uh, I wanted to talk about, because like I said, in the question, there's sometimes a presupposition that's not true. And I wanted to, to take that apart. One thing he said was, how many of us sinners would have many human lives in which to repent? And I think this is confusing two different issues. Uh, On the one hand, what is necessary to be saved, and on the other hand, what is necessary to make full satisfaction for uh, all our sins and be sufficiently purified to enter into heaven. And these are two different issues. Ultimately, to be saved, 
one must die in the state of grace, the sanctifying grace. That's really how simple it is. And if you died in the state of grace, it's impossible for a soul in the state of grace to be damned. Because in that soul is God's own life. In that soul, there's the virtue of charity, perhaps in a small degree, but that degree is essentially a union with God and a friendship with God and a participation in God's own life, because that's what divine grace is, that would radically fit it for heaven. Now, that soul may need to be purified first, but if the soul dies with charity in its heart, the, the supernatural love of God, ultimately, that soul will be saved. Now, we can, it's a whole other topic of how to acquire that, that charity and that uh, sanctifying grace. And first of all, we, we gain it through baptism. Um, and if we've lost it, for us, we, we, we go to the sacrament of penance. Um, and if, or if one is not able to immediately receive uh, the sacrament of penance, we believe that sanctifying grace can be immediately recovered by an act of perfect contrition. And that's a whole other topic that I do want to deal with in a, in a future show, Perfect Contrition, the act of love of God, because it's so intimately connected with progress in the spiritual life. But I want to say this, that perfect contrition is simply contrition or sorrow for our sins out of the motive of love for God. And of course, having a firm purpose of amendment. So it, perfect contrition, people are scared of that word. I can't do anything perfect. That's an adjective that shouldn't scare us away. What it means is that just, just the motive out of love for God rather than fear of hell. So it doesn't depend on the duration or the intensity, but on the motive, on the motive. And this is really an act of perfect contrition is essentially what baptism of desire means. Uh, as St. Alphonsus teaches, the baptism by the flame of divine love, that's ultimately what it is. And this, this act of perfect contrition would put us immediately back in the state of grace. So essentially, it's not impossible, nor exceedingly difficult, with the help of God's grace, to make this basic act of contrition from the love of God that would put us back in his friendship. So we should never lose hope. What is essential to repentance can be accomplished in a moment of time, a flash. And this is... uh, Really, the spiritual life is actually quite simple. It, 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 it's ultimately an act of the will for God or against God, a turning of the heart uh, to God in charity or the turning away from Him. And the spiritual life is really that, that after the soul is turned to God in friendship, that the spiritual life consists in simply strengthening this bond of loving union. So repentance doesn't have to take a long time doesn't take many human lives. It can take a moment, uh, an act of the will. But perfect satisfaction uh, may take a long time, but even that isn't necessarily true. It wasn't for many of the saints. I'll take an example. St. Thomas Aquinas believed that St. Mary Magdalene's repentance was so intense, so full of love for our blessed Lord, that she not only obtained the complete forgiveness of all her sins, but she also totally expiated all of the temporal punishment due to those sins. So she was totally wiped clean. And if she were to die right then, she would be worthy of immediate entrance into heaven with no need for further purification. And that was the opinion of St. Thomas. Uh, Many sins are forgiven her, our Lord said, because she has loved much. So many people have the idea that the only way to make satisfaction for our debt of sin is by extraordinary sufferings or penances. 
And they think without these, it would be futile to hope to bypass purgatory or, or be saved. But this is not so. It is not the intensity of sufferings uh, that purify us in themselves and makes us pleasing in God's sight. It is love. It is divine charity which does this. Love for him burning in our hearts. And love is the consuming fire. And to close with this, I just wanted to quote uh, uh, a really good uh, medieval uh, uh, mystic, uh, a Dominican, uh, Father Towler. Uh, And he spoke about this power of love back in the 1300s. And he said this, A man can, can, in a moment, by true love of God, with great detestation of sin and sincere contempt of self, purely for the glory of God, so strongly and intensely turn himself from all sin as to obtain at once pardon for all the guilt as well as the punishment of sin. So that if he should die in that state, he would fly straight to God without anything to prevent perfect union, even if he alone had committed the sins of the whole world. And he also said, if such a man had been guilty of the sins of all other men put together, God would forgive him everything the instant he had attained this state of perfect love. So really, that should encourage us. That It's about real repentance, and it could take a moment of time. It, we shouldn't be discouraged thinking, I'll never make up for all my sins. We can do it. We can do it with, the, with God's grace, of course, but he wants us to do that. He doesn't want us to go to purgatory. He doesn't want us to be damned. If we ask him for this perfect contrition, he will give it to us, and we will have at least sufficient to, to obtain his forgiveness. So I think let's get back to the question at hand. There's a few other points I want to make on this topic, and we, we have to get to our main topic for the day. But again, I think everything is overlapping. I think there's, this leads to the cross eventually. I want to put back, if God is love, why is hell? I think we're looking at it from the wrong angle, the wrong side. It's precisely because God is love that there is a hell. And it is precisely that, that God is eternal love that hell has to be everlasting. But some people think that, isn't it cruel that God punishes eternally a sin that may have only taken a few minutes to commit? But we never, even in this world, we never measure the gravity of offense by how long it took to commit. We never do that. St. Thomas uh, says this, suffering, suffering is proportioned not to the duration of sin, but to its gravity. A deed of assassination, which lasts a few minutes, merits death or life imprisonment. A momentary act of betrayal merits permanent exile. But mortal sin has a gravity without measure. Further, it remains as an habitual disorder, in itself irreparable, which merits punishment without end. But we ask, isn't God merciful? If it isn't he infinite mercy, yes, he is. And he's always ready to pardon us. He's always ready to forgive a humble and contrite heart. But the souls in hell and the demons in hell, they never ask God's mercy. They can't. Their wills are fixed. So just hypothetically speaking, if the devil could repent, God probably would forgive him. I would say that. But that he won't repent. He is obstinate in his pride away from God. Uh, and, and, and God will forgive if we are repentant and humble, but the demon, the, the demons in hell and the damn souls are not humble. They they will never humble themselves. Hmm. It, it seems I wanted to, to quote Father, Thomas Aquinas. Yep. 
I was just going to say, it seems to me that's somewhat implicit in the question of how can hell exist, that one is assuming that repentant souls can be sent into hell. Right. But I I think, as you've made clear, it's unrepentant souls that end up in hell, and they don't even, they don't want to be in heaven. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's just the nature of things. God is what he is. And if you don't conform to him, that's just reality. That is just reality. It's like the law of gravity. Whether you like it or not, you jump out of a building, you're going to break your leg. There's a law of gravity and there's a law of love that if you uh, 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 reject love, you're going to be hurt. You're going to be hurt by it. Uh, Let me quote St. Thomas. Um, He says, God in, in himself is mercy without bounds, but his mercy is regulated by wisdom, which forbids mercy to demons and to demonize men. Yet even on these, mercy is still exercised, not to put an end to their sufferings, but to punish them less than their merits demand. And again, he wrote, if mercy were not mingled with justice, the damned would suffer still more. All God's ways are mercy and justice. And justice enters in the second place when divine mercy has been scorned. Even then it intervenes not to remove the suffering, but to render it less heavy and painful. So think of that, that the damned truly deserve more than they receive, and that God has mercy upon them, even that. And that's not necessarily the most comforting thought, but it is a truth to bear in mind. In fact, I've heard it said that of the two kinds of sufferings in hell, the pain of loss of God and the, and the, uh, the positive pain of sense, which is the actual fire of hell, which causes really great pain, but the pain of loss is by far the worst of the two. And to us, we can't fathom that. Uh, if God just threatened us with, with losing him, we'd be, say, big deal. But he has to, again, he, he does frighten us with, with the thought of everlasting fire. No one wants to be burned. Um, because, again, we don't fully appreciate the greatness of God and how absolutely we need him. Uh, because in this life, he mercifully gives us little crumbs of his goodness and joy and happiness in this life. And unfortunately, we become satisfied with the crumbs and we feel we don't need him. But when all the little crumbs, when every speck of goodness and truth and beauty and love is taken away from us, then we will suffer a hunger so great uh, that we would desire to be annihilated. It will be, it would, that's the pain, that we will feel this hunger for God and never be satisfied ever again, that we have, we have no goodness in our life anymore, no life, no love, no truth, no beauty. Uh, and that's really the essence of how the loss of, of, of God. Um, but it has been said that the pain of the fire in hell is actually given to the damned, first of all, as a punishment for their misuse of pleasure and the creatures in this world, but it also as a kind of distraction from the pain of loss. And that may not be the most comforting thought, but that the fire itself is a distraction. It's the merciful, it's the mercy of God distracting them from, from the greater pain. But I thought, I also thought, uh, when, when meditating on this question, that I, I found it is interesting that s- some have said that, and I don't know if this is true, but it's an interesting thought, that the fire in hell is, in a sense, God's love itself, but God's love has hated and rejected. You see, God is like a sun, an infinite goodness shining upon his creatures, and in heaven, for a purified soul... In love with God, this light will be the source of unutterable bliss and happiness. But in but in uh, in hell, 
where God's love is hated and rejected, this light will cause unutterable misery and pain. So it's, it's almost like in this world, the same sun will, uh, uh, will um, melt wax, but it hardens clay. So it's the same sun, but the effect on the material is different according to its own uh, uh, qualities. And this may be hard for us to swallow, but God is a consuming fire. St. Paul called him that. He is a consuming fire. And if, if you have anything in you that is opposed to him, he will burn that out of you. And, and, and that is a thought we have to keep in mind, that the purpose of this life is to, to get our souls ready to bear that fire and, and have it uh, a source of happiness for us, because it will for those who are purified in union with God. And I know we're, we're spending a long time on this, but uh, um, I think these are important topics to talk about. And we have to remember that God has a right to be loved. He has a right, and he made this a commandment, the first and greatest commandment, to love him above all things. And Father, uh, I'm going to quote Father Gergou Lagrange. He was paraphrasing St. Thomas, but he wrote this in his book, Life Everlasting, which is an excellent book I recommend to, to the listeners. He says this, quote, The eternal punishment manifests God's un- inalienable right to be loved above all else. God good and merciful, has his delight, not in the suffering of the damned, but in his own unequaled goodness. The elect, beholding the radiance of God's supreme justice, are thereby led to thank him for their own salvation. So, infinite goodness is a source both of mercy and of justice. Of mercy because it is essentially self-communicative. That means that God, I'm commenting here, that God wants to give himself. God is justice, and if you don't uh, accept his goodness, then justice has to step in, and, and the result is suffering. So, Gergo Lagrange asks, what created hell? God's justice, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love. And I will paraphrase uh, uh, a... Um, Dominican priest, Father Lacordaire, a great preacher from the 1800s. Um, now, let me just read, actually, what he, what he wrote on this. He said, Had justice alone created the abyss, there might be remedy. But it is love, the first love, sempiternal, that made hell. This it is which banishes hope. Were I condemned by justice, I might flee to love. But if I am condemned by love, whither can I turn? Such is the fate of the damned. Love that gave his blood for them. This love, this same love, must now curse them. Just think, tis God who came down to you, who took on your own nature, who spoke your language, healed your wounds, raised your dead to life. Tis God who died for you on a cross. And shall, and shall you still be permitted to blaspheme and mock, to enjoy to the full your voluptuousness? No, deceive not yourselves. Love is not a farce. It is God's love which punishes. God's crucified love. It is not justice that is without mercy. It is love. Love is life or death. And if that love is God's love, then love is either eternal life or eternal death. And to close, there's another point that the listener made that I will address, that we are not in a high-stakes gamble. Life is not a game of chance at all. 
It's a question of decision. It's not good luck or bad luck. Of course, some souls are in a better position, more opportunity perhaps, and God gives special graces to some souls. And this is a mystery why he chooses one more than the other. But everyone receives sufficient grace to save their souls. And God truly and earnestly desires the salvation of all men, just not just the quote-unquote predestined. And souls are predestined only in the sense that God does choose to give special graces to certain souls more than others. But souls are predestined in the sense that according to their actions, no one is created for hell. God, of course, knows if a soul will ultimately reject his grace and be damned, but that's not his fault, but theirs. Remember that God is not in time. He sees all of us right now. He sees us in the same moment we're being created and we're dying, and also whether we are in hell or heaven. This is all the same moment to him. To him, all time is present in the sense, to God, there is no future. It's simply now. He's, he's already in your tomorrow. He sees you sinning or not sinning, but he doesn't make you sin. He simply sees you doing it and freely. Now, if he only created souls who he knew would be saved, then all of us would be assured salvation, no matter what we believed or did in this life. Again, that, that, that there would be no true justice in that mode of acting. If he created, if he was going to create free intelligent beings, then they have to be able to choose him or not choose him. And there's consequences for those. So I think the final answer is simply that no one will go to hell unless they truly merited it, and that it, it is the most just thing for God to do. And so let us leave to God to make the final judgment. Who goes there? Who doesn't? We have no window into any man's conscience. Our place is not to do the sifting. And thank goodness it's not our job. It is our Lord's job. And we can be assured that our, our Lord, our blessed Savior, the Good Shepherd, will do everything in his power to save as many souls as possible. And if a soul goes to hell, it's not because our Lord did not try enough, did not care enough, did not give chance after chance after chance, and did not offer grace and opportunity, but because that soul obstinately refused grace after grace and opportunity after opportunity. No one should think that we are more concerned for souls than our Lord is. We ask, does God care about us? Of course he does. He was crowned with thorns for us. He was scourged to pieces for us. He was crucified for us. What more can he do for souls that he has not done? And he has revealed to many of the saints and mystics that he would be willing to die again for us if only his death would save one more soul. But it wouldn't do any more good, and he knows that. And he has done enough. So with that, I think we should uh, move on to the actual topic. Yeah, well, I think that uh, takes us perfectly into the topic of the passion, and uh, thank you for that discussion. It, it, it did take us a little while; we're almost to the top of the hour, but I, did. I think it was—I uh, think it was worthwhile because it is a question that I know is a burning question with a lot of people these days. Uh, certainly, the the uh, listener who posted to Facebook isn't the first person that I've heard this question from. Oh no! So, um, so, so thank you for that uh, exposition, Father. It's uh, it's very helpful, and uh, but before we go into the topic at hand, I'll just uh, uh, quickly remind listeners, anyone who's just joining us, you're listening to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network, and uh, today we are discussing the passion, and we've just spent the first part of the show answering an important question from a listener, talking about uh, how, uh, in light of our previous shows, speaking about the 
uh, all loving nature of God, uh, this Father's uh, given us a excellent and um, uh, very uh, deep uh, discussion on how uh, and why hell exists, and we're now going to uh, go into a discussion of uh, of the passion. And I'd just like to remind listeners that the spiritual life is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. So with that said, Father, um, if uh, you, you could lead us into okay. the discussion of the passion. Okay, I hope we are uh, able to get through what I wanted to, to talk about today, but I'll do my best. Um, yeah, let's delve into the cross and uh, its meaning in our life, but I think to do this properly, we need to sum up the whole mystery of redemption uh, from the beginning, and it takes us back to the beginning. And I'll do this briefly. So first, we, we, we know about the original sin of Adam and Eve and, and, the, and the first human sin, the, the great act of disobedience. And, and Adam fell. It's a fact. He fell, and his fall introduced physical suffering uh, into the world and, and, and for humans and the death of the body for himself and for all humanity. But even more, more, more importantly, he sinned, he sinned mortally. Mortally, uh, he died the death, a spiritual death, by losing the precious gift of sanctifying grace, which is, again, I keep saying, the participation in the divine nature. Uh, he was already like unto God by grace. Uh, but to be like God in holiness was not enough for him. He wanted more. He wanted God's autonomy. He wanted God's independence. He wanted the freedom to create his own rules of right and wrong. And we have to remember that his sin was a terrible act of disobedience. The crowning disaster is that Adam did not act as an individual. And this is why Adam's sin was worse than Eve's. Uh, at this point, at that point, he was the head of mankind and he stood in God's sight for all humanity. Humanity was to stand or fall by him. It was to be graced or disgraced by his decision. And so all humanity was defiled at its source. It's like a well that has been poisoned and everything that flows out of it, it's going to be poisoned. And so his was not a little sin either. I tend to think, well, he was weak. No, he wasn't weak. He was strong. His will was very strong. He, he had grace. Uh, he was in complete control of his passions. His mind was not darkened as ours is. He had abundant grace. And so his knowledge and malice was greater than ours and our sins. And since then, of course, mankind has added their own countless sins. But to go contrary to God's will is to sever union with him. For love is the union of wills. And for all these sins... For Adam's sin and for the sins of all humanity, including my sins and your sins, God would demand complete reparation, perfect satisfaction, and strict justice. As I said before, the gravity of an offense is measured by the one offended. And since God is infinite, an infinite satisfaction had to be made. The problem was that a, a mere finite man, no matter how good and holy he was, could never give infinite satisfaction, perfect reparation. But in God's infinite mercy and goodness, he found a solution. The second person of the Most Holy Trinity would himself uh, become man by assuming to himself, in, in addition to his divine nature, a complete and perfect human nature, just like we have, a body and a soul. People forget. He had a soul. He had a human soul. 
and his body and soul were capable of suffering and death. And he would redeem us. It was decreed that he would redeem us by nothing else than his own intense suffering and death on the cross. Now we know that really any act by the Word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, would have been of infinite value because he was an infinite divine person, really a blink of an eye, a, a single heartbeat, one drop of blood would amply satisfy God's justice for a million worlds. And yet none of these simple acts would have satisfied God's yearning love for us. And he chose to go to the limit of endurance for us. And plus, if, if, if he uh, redeemed us by uh, one of these simple acts, we would still question his love for us. We even still question his love for us after he's done what he's done. That's amazing. So God knew that, and he went to the, the, the limit. Uh, he could not do more than he's done. So he, he chose to go to the limit of endurance for us. But Christ, as head and representative of the human race, he is the new Adam. He's the new Adam, and he would take upon himself not the sins of men, not the guilt of sin. He doesn't become a sinner, but he becomes, but the responsibility and the punishment that these sins merited, that he, the just one, holy and undefiled, he, 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 who is neither sin nor sinner himself personally, he committed, he never committed a sin. He could never commit a sin. Some people don't realize that. It's amazing. Uh, even some Catholics, they don't realize, our Lord, it's impossible for him to sin and go contrary to God. But he, the Holy One, the Holy and Undefiled One, would assume responsibility as a member of the sinful race of men, as the head of a new, that he would become the head of a new redeemed race of men, spiritually reborn and sanctified by his death, if they so choose, and if they if they consented to be one with him by faith and charity. So in a sense, he took his... He took all the responsibility on him as though he, were, he was responsible for it, and he would take the punishment. But in order to gain from his, from his sacrifice, we have to be united with him by faith and charity. And that's how his, uh, uh, his sacrifice would flow to us. I want to take a moment, though, even though this may not have a, a direct uh, um, or, or necessarily uh, direct uh, um, on the subject, but I, I do want to talk about his intent, the sufferings and the intensity of his suffering, because some people forget this. Um, and I think in meditating on the passion of Christ, we, we should always keep in mind the intensity of his sufferings, both of soul and of body, in order to have a just appreciation of them. And also it helps us to see the cost of our sins, and it demonstrates how much our Lord truly loves us. And for this, let me quote St. Thomas Aquinas again. He said, quote, The pain suffered by our Lord was the greatest pain possible in this life. And, unquote. And an, another uh, Dominican theologian, Father Walter Farrell, he wrote this, quote, Christ allowed his human nature to experience the length and the breadth and the depth of human suffering. Because he suffered to atone for the sins of all men, he allowed himself to endure the fullness of human pain, unquote. I think it's important to keep this in mind uh, because we think, well, he doesn't know what it means to have a headache. He doesn't know what it means to have my suffering that I had. He's had everything you could possibly imagine and a, a million times more. Um, and to quote, I wanted to uh, uh, quote Father Lean on this uh, as well. 
He said the sufferings of Christ, intense in themselves, were inconceivably bitter because of the extreme sensitiveness of him who suffered. The exquisite sensibility of the sacred body added a peculiar intensity to the sufferings of the Savior. The finest and most delicately balanced nature that we could imagine would be blunt, a perception compared with the Christ. His body was fashioned by the hands of the Holy Spirit himself to be the manner of the supreme matter of the supreme sacrifice. It can be said that the body of Christ was made for suffering because expressly fashioned for sacrifice. Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast fitted to me. Holocaust, Holocaust for sin did not please thee. Then said I, behold, I come. When one thinks of the thoroughness of the divine workmanship, awful in the extreme must have been the agonies experienced by him who was fashioned by God for the endurance of pain. Unquote. And this is what led St. Alphonsus to, to say that, that our Lord suffered more than all the penitents, uh, more than all the martyrs suffered, uh, more than all the saints, that he suffered more than, than all human beings. And that's something we have to keep in mind, that he who knew so much suffering, he cannot but be understanding and compassionate towards us and our suffering. Uh, he knew our suffering from the inside, what it means to have human suffering to the, de- to the depths. But what was it about his death that was pleasing to God? Was it the blood uh, and, su- and suffering in themselves? Absolutely not. The, the, the putting to death of Christ was the greatest crime that has ever stained human hands. And thus, it, it could not be agreeable to God in itself. And it would be wrong to think that God found some sort of satisfaction in, in the sufferings themselves of his only begotten son. I think his sufferings were abhorrent to God. But all this dreadful suffering was completely transformed into a thing of radiant beauty to God because it was the outward expression, not of heroic endurance, but of heroic obedience and the proof of an utterly selfless love. God does not love suffering in itself, and Christ did not seek suffering for its own sake. In that sense, he merely endured it. He didn't really choose the cross but he rather bore it willingly and patiently. It was God the Father who chose the cross as the means of man's salvation. And our blessed Savior accepted this choice. Not my will, but thine be done. And regardless of what it should cost in the way of suffering, Christ would abandon himself completely to his Father's will down to the last detail. So that was the great love that was behind the sacrifice that pleased God. And our Lord himself said this, that the world may know that I love the Father before he went out. So it's a sign. It's a sacrifice. That's really what a sacrifice is. Uh, his death was a true sacrifice. And a sacrifice for God, in the Old Testament as well as the New, a sacrifice for God is, a, is almost like a sacred drama. It's a sign portraying uh, uh, externally and in, in the most eloquent and impressive manner God, man's complete and loving submission to God and dependence upon God. And so the passion was a true and perfect liturgical sacrifice, and all the sacrifices uh, of the old law were but shadows, were, were just, were just, were just uh, symbols of this future sacrifice. And this is what uh, they, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb or animal, it was destroyed, it was sacrificed. 
and was given completely back to God, it was made sacred and, and separate and consecrated as a sign of the priests and the people's inward submission to God and as a testimony of their allegiance to God. This, this, this animal that was sacrificed would represent themselves, but Christ is the true Lamb of God. And that's from all eternity, God decreed that Christ as head and a representative of humanity would surrender his life in token of humanity's willing obedience to God. And that's really uh, the essence of this sacrifice. It was in this sacrifice, our Lord was both the priest and the victim, the, the offerer and the offered. And as victim, he was completely passive and he willed to be completely powerless in the hands of his executioners. Despite, and despite all appearances, only because he freely willed it. Uh, and this is what he said, Therefore doth the Father love me, because I, lay down my, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No man takes it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. And I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take, up, take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So as, as priests elevated... On the cross, our Lord offered his wounds, his blood, his agony, and his death to his Father as eloquent testimony of his obedience to the divine will, even unto death, no matter what it takes, he would be obedient, even if it meant his death. And, and he represented man. He was a man. He spoke in our, our place. And as man, man was, was finally obedient to God. And so it was a great act of adoration and love, and it was of infinite value for us. And so by his incarnation and death uh, for our redemption, Christ is the second Adam, the new head of a redeemed humanity, uh, of a race of men spiritually reborn and sanctified, if, if we so choose. And by his sacrifice, our Lord opened to us the possibility of entering heaven and enjoying the beatific vision for all eternity by purchasing for us, again, by his precious blood, the very precious gift of sanctifying grace, which we don't always appreciate what that means, sanctifying grace. This is the life he came to give us. Now, this mystery, the mystery of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, is at the heart of our faith. It's the center and core of Catholicism. And this is why, for instance, the, the sign of the cross is woven into everything we do. Uh, not only does the church desire that we often trace upon ourselves uh, the sign of our redemption, she also encourages us never to have the image of the crucified or the crucifix far from our sight. And yet, it's not enough to see the cross physically. You know, the soldiers, after they had finished nailing the Son of God to the cross, they sat and watched him die. They saw every detail of the sufferings of our Lord. That's all they saw. To them, it was merely another execution. They had eyes, but they did not see. And so it is, I think, with many of us. We, we, we see the crucifix very often. We take it for granted most of the time. We sometimes read books describing the Passion. And we, we even watched that excellent movie, The Passion of the Christ, which, which I believe personally to be a providential sign that we probably are in the end times. I, I think this... <laughs> In a sense, I think it to be providential that this is the last chance. This is the passion, as close as you're going to get in a movie, being presented to the whole world. Um, and look what our Lord did to you. This is your chance to turn from your sins. But we see all these things. 
And although we may not be entirely indifferent or dead to it, I don't think it stirs us as deeply as it should. Obviously, it doesn't. And I I even speak for myself. Sometimes we we say these things uh, like it's just we're reading about some other uh, story. This is real life. And I think many of us, we can picture in detail the awful scenes of Christ's bloody passion uh, within our imagination. Uh, Tears may even well up in our eyes. But how many penetrate past those external actions and understand the profound inner meaning of these mysteries for our own spiritual life? And this is what Father Lean would would go into in his books. Uh, And I'll quote, sometimes his his words are, and it's perhaps a little harsh or or extreme, but uh, I think he was on to something, definitely. I think I definitely agree with him. Let me quote him first. He said this, It is because so few consider the cross in this light that they pass their days on earth, even in the bosom of the Catholic Church, and reach their graves without having a clear, full, and Catholic grasp of the central mystery of their religion. Does the average Catholic understand the passion? Does the average priest understand the significance of the passion of Christ? Again, no. He knows of it as an historical event. He knows all the details of it. He can dilate and analyze minutely all the various sufferings, from the agony in the garden to the death on Calvary. He can expound the theological worth of the cross as a sacrifice of expiation. But being able to do all that is not the same as understanding the cross of Christ. It is the mystery of mysteries, one almost of impenetrable darkness, and therefore one in face of which our attitude should be one of earnest prayer to get some insight into its significance, an insight which would throw light on our own life experiences. It is unsatisfactory for us to know the mysteries of faith unless they are an instruction for us in handling our existence, unquote. So much of what I say here is, is paraphrasing Father Lean. I will definitely give my own uh, insights as well, but uh, much of what I say has been inspired by reading Father Lean's works. Uh, again, uh, that's why he's my favorite spiritual writer. I've learned so much uh, from him. And re- I recommend to all our listeners to, to, if you can find his books, they're becoming more hard uh, to find. I, I hope that one day they can be reprinted and easily accessible. But um, Father Lean talks about, he quotes, he said, you know, out of an overwhelming love for us, God surrendered to death his only begotten son. And he says, and by the cross we are saved. We hear this, and by the cross we are saved. But what does that statement mean? By the cross, we are saved. I think Father Lee brings up, there's two interpretations, uh, two main interpretations of the cross, and they differ as night, night and day. And the first is the Catholic interpretation, which I'll deal with in a second. Then there is the typical non-Catholic view, the, the typical Protestant view. And without any insult intended to anyone, uh, their position in the practical order uh, maybe roughly summarized in words to this effect, even though it may not apply to every uh, Protestant, but generally, generally speaking, it's this, that they believe Christ suffered for me, and in my place, he has done it all. And I accept him as my savior, and I am saved by his passion. I simply believe, and my part is finished. And I can more or less live my life the way I want to. That, at the end of the day, is really the Protestant notion 
generally speaking. There may be some exceptions. Um, but now for the Catholic, the passion of Christ entails much more. It means much more to us than this. The passion of Christ is meant to influence uh, our entire view of the world and affect our entire way of life. Our faith is a living faith. It's not merely, we're not just recalling past events, uh, but mysteries that we experience, that we're meant to experience and live out in our own lives. These truths are still in effect. They're still going on. Yeah, I think that goes now back we, to, now, if I, just uh, mm-hmm. to remind our listeners, uh, Father, I know we discussed that last uh, last month when we were discussing the Holy Trinity, that uh, right. I think you discussed that God, like all, all times, past, present, and future, are all the are really all the present for our Lord. Or and so, for, as far as the Trinity is con- concerned, it, from a certain way of looking at things, the Passion is still happening right now. At the same time as everything else in right. history is all happening. Right. Yeah, I will. I will deal with that uh, eventually. But that's a that's an excellent point, and that just leads really what. Uh, uh, it brings it alive for the Catholic. It, it, the passion is so real to us. And that's why the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, really could only have been made by a Catholic, because these these mysteries are constantly in our consciousness. We're, we're constantly reminded about the, the mysteries of the Sorrowful Mysteries and, and the Station of the Cross and, and the Passion, the, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is Calvary. Uh, it's the Sacrifice of Calvary. Uh, uh, in an unbodied manner offered to the Father, uh, the reenactment of, of, of Calvary. But um, for the Catholic, in order for us to benefit by the, the cross, by the sacrifice that our Lord uh, uh, offered for us, and all the grace that he merited for us, in order to, it's more, we have to do more than simply say we believe with our lips, and, and, and more than just accepting our Lord more than even just having faith in him. But we have to have love for him. We have to have love for him. And our Lord himself said this, Amen, 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 I say to you, not every man that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the will of his Father, we obedience, love, and these will eventually mean the cross for us, because what the Eternal Father wills for his Son, he wills for us too. We have to share his cross in one degree or another. St. Augustine said that God created us without our cooperation, but he will not save us without our cooperation. So the Catholic view of the cross is this, that the cross does not end with Christ. Let me uh, again go back to Father Lean. He, um, he uh, and quote an anecdote in, in one of his retreats. He says this, I remember when I was a schoolboy coming in contact with another boy, more than ordinarily uh, introspective, not superficial, not shallow, a boy who never shouted with the crowd, a boy who took nothing for granted, but wanted to know the why of everything. In those days, boys remained in school for Easter holidays, and therefore they had the opportunity of having the ceremonies of Holy Week. On Good Friday, there was a public way of the cross conducted by the priest in charge. That young boy said that he found that service one of intolerable agony, from which he shrank. He emerged from it gladly when the last verses of the Stavit Mater had died away. He could not bear the stations of the cross. Asked why, 
when the other boys who assisted at the same service were so different. He replied, how can they listen to these prayers and contemplate these scenes and remain as they are? I cannot understand. I cannot stand them because in in each of them, I see a flat denial of all things I value in life. I am ambitious. I am proud, sensual. I seek enjoyment. I cannot understand how the others who are the same can reconcile their lives with this. Something reproaches me interiorly in front of each station and says to me, you are wrong. Your life must take this shape. This is the true theory of life, and life is only true when it takes this form. You do not want to be with Christ, to carry the cross, to have sufferings. Your life on your own avowal is opposite all this. Therefore, all this is outside you. I am a Christian, and it should not be outside me. And so I hate to contemplate this which tells me I am all wrong. Were the others right? Father Lean continues. Were the others right, or was he right? They reflected the Protestant attitude. He reflected, though perversely, the Catholic attitude. So as Father Lean uh, uh, repeats over and over in his works, the cross is really Christ's theory of life. It's his philosophy of life, his way of life, his way to heaven. And unless we understand it in that way, our devotion to the passion is not as it should be. The cross is really the symbol of the Christian way of living. And it teaches us that sacrifice is the essential condition for attaining the salvation which Christ won for us. That sacrifice is not only for the Savior, but for the saved as well. And that the cross is not only for Christ, but for every Christian. Father Lean, uh, paraphrase. Go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead, Father. Father Lean, uh, he paraphrases Cardinal Newman, and he says this, We are not saved by looking at the cross of Christ and contemplating his sufferings and pitying them and even weeping over them, not even by acknowledging with gratitude that his blood has been shed for the expiation of our sins. We are not saved by standing outside the cross. No, we are saved only by taking it into our own hearts and setting it in our own lives as the interpretation of the whole riddle of existence and as the key to the problems of our own practical living. So really, the the cross of our Lord does not dispense us from carrying our own cross in his footsteps. And this is so obvious from the reading of the Gospels. Our Lord says this over and over. He said to all, if any man will come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And these words were addressed to everyone, not to just a select few heroes of asceticism. He wrote to everyone. Our Lord said, and whosoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And notice our Lord said cannot, and not just will not, cannot, because the cross, in one form or another, is an essential part of life for a follower of Jesus Christ. But it is obviously his cross and his sufferings that sanctify our own individual crosses and sufferings. Because without him, anything we could do, anything, any sufferings, would be absolutely worthless without him, supernaturally speaking. But in union with his cross, union with his sacrifice, our cross receives its value, and it makes our actions, our sufferings, worthy of an eternal reward. Did you want to say something, well, I, Nicholas? Well, I was just going to... Uh 
ask, Father. I mean, we've you've spoken a lot about um, the uh, central part of the cross and about carrying our cross, but a question that listeners may be wondering of what what exactly is the cross that we're supposed to carry? Is it? Uh, yeah, I think you've spoken of the sufferings of life on Earth. Is, right. is there more to it than that? Um, it is a good question. Uh, obviously, we're not called uh, to literally carry a cross of wood like our Savior did, obviously. And we're not asked to seek suffering and pain in themselves, but we are called to sacrifice. We are called to make all the sacrifices necessary to be a true Christian, a uh, true Catholic, to, to shoulder the daily, you know, the pain of keeping faithful to the divine will, uh, obedient to God's commandments, and to try to observe at least some of his counsels for spiritual perfection, um, and to abandon ourselves to God in the trials that uh, divine providence may have in store for us. We have to do this willingly and patiently and lovingly. So really, the cross contains all the sufferings that we might have to suffer in order to be united with God, in order to be united to his will, both actively and passively. And so ultimately, this is the good works that we have to do to be saved. You know, when we say faith and good works, uh, good works doesn't mean just random acts of kindness or just helping old ladies across the street or opening a food kitchen or or merely uh, fingering rosary beads through our fingers or, or lighting a bunch of votive candles. You know, all those may be good things, but the fundamental good work that we must do to be saved is obey God. And that's a cross sometimes, obey his commandments, that we have to live and die in the state of grace, in God's friendship, and we have to avoid anything that might sever our union with God or hinder our union with God. And that demands sacrifice, that we have to say no to ourselves, and this is a cross. So the cross is absolutely necessary to be saved. And on this topic, I want to quote, I want to quote uh, Father Lean. He says, the mention of the cross should not cause dismay. It is true that the associations of the term are fearsome. In what is essential, the cross is nothing more than what, in the way of restraint, must be imposed on our unsupernatural tendencies in order to keep them subject to the law of reason and of faith. Man, being a fallen creature, necessarily suffers in every act of renouncement demanded of him. If he is to conform to the demands of the Christian moral code, to act supernaturally costs pain to fallen nature. The enduring of such pain is the carrying of the cross. And uh, quoting Father Gergo Lagrange, he continues, uh, Father Gergo Lagrange says, What Christian language calls the cross by analogy with the suffering and death of Christ are the daily physical and moral sufferings which come from our relations with the external world and with our fallen fellow creatures, but above all, the cross means the sufferings more directly sent by God to create in us a greater resemblance to Jesus Christ. The necessity of the cross has two principal reasons. The first is that we bear in ourselves the roots of an evil which strikes deeper into us than we think. The second is that a closer intimacy be established through it between us and our models, Jesus and Mary, unquote. So we have to Really, it's not extraordinary sufferings that we're seeking. We don't have to be crucified, literally. Uh, but we are crucified to our vocation. We are crucified to our daily duties. 
we're crucified and by obeying God in his commandments. So we have to say no to temptations and everything that this world, we have to be detached from this world. We have to live crucified lives in that sense. Um, and this is what a Christian means, that we are, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, and that demands sacrifice. St. Paul says to us that, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. So we have to strive to have the same dispositions of Christ that he, that he had, that we uh, are determined to do the will of God, no matter what sacrifice that will entail for us, even if it means death. Even if, if someone says, do this or die, we have to choose death if it means going against God's will. Well, I now, think now, the uh, quote you gave from, uh, is somewhat touched on this, but I guess the next question is, uh, why do we need the cross? Well, it, it, it did hint at it, that the reason why the cross is so necessary and why our Lord demands that we share his cross is that we need to be actually holy in order to live with God in heaven, as I talked about at the beginning of the show. And, and the great paradox of the gospel is that we, we have to die in order to live. We have to die to our sinful and selfish selves in order for God's life to flourish in our soul. And this is why our Lord said, for whosoever will, will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. So anything in us that is ungodlike has to die. You know, the, 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 the old man, the fallen human nature, has to give place to the life of God. And we can consider uh, um, fallen human nature like a, a sort of cancer of the soul. And cancer is a, a parasitic growth. It develops and consumes and grows uh, as it consumes the health of the body. But if health is to recover, the cancer has to be destroyed. And that's the whole process of sanctification, is that the, the, the progressive emptying out of all attachment to self-will and pride and egoism and all these things. Remember, our Lord came not only to take away our sins, but he came also to take away all our sinfulness, the root of those sins. He's not going to just pluck, pull up some of the weeds from the leaves. He wants to take those roots out of us, and that hurts. Uh, and now we have to do our best. Uh, our, our own efforts are necessary, but, but they're feeble, and they'll never reach deep enough into our souls to root out the evil. And that is why we need trials sent by God. And the cross that our Lord sends us, is the instrument which serves to mortify, which literally means put to death that unhealthy life within the soul, anything that conflicts with the life of God. The cross is like a scalpel that's uh, wielded by the divine physician for an operation, namely to cut out from our lives the real disease within us. And God, as any good and loving father, he sometimes has to give us he has to give us, his children, bitter medicine to heal us. He has to correct us. But whether, you know, sometimes he sends a cross, and whether it heals us or hurts us, it all depends on how we use it, how we react to the treatment. But the cross is meant to bring us closer to God, not push us away from him. Um, and, uh, like I said, it's not that we have to love pain and suffering for themselves, but we have to love him for a higher good. And the daily sufferings that, of life, that if we bear it in union with our Lord's cross, it will bring life. It will bring life 
through the death of our own selfishness. Father Lean says, quote, the cross then can have its degrees. God, by what he directly wills for us or permits to happen to us, can give it a more intense form in view of effecting in our souls a deeper purification and in consequence a closer contact with himself. To enjoy union with God, the soul must be purified. This purification has to be accomplished here or hereafter. It costs much less in this world than in the, in the world to come, unquote. So really that brings us to the doctrine of purgatory. Um, we don't have time to go into that, but th- that it finishes off the purification that was started in this life, if there's any left over. Now I wanted to, to go on to, uh, it continues on this theme that based on these, these truths, I would say that most people misjudge the ultimate purpose of this life, even many Catholics, or at least they forget it, many traditional Catholics as well. They forget why why we're in this world. Our life on earth has been given us for the sole purpose, the sole purpose of our interior purification and sanctification. The purpose of life, Father Lean says this over and over, the purpose of life is not gratification, but purification not material or, or social success in this world, but sanctification of our own soul, first and foremost, and then the souls for those we are responsible for. Um, so there is a tendency to think that as long as we are obeying the commandments and going to Mass on Sundays and saying our prayers, that God should send us, as a reward, he should send us material prosperity and financial security and physical well-being for us and our loved ones, and we should be filled with spiritual consolations. And there's a tendency to think that God is pleased with us when we are, are, our lives are bathed in sunshine and everything is going smoothly, smoothly, and that he is angry with us when we are plunged into some trial or, 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 or trial or temptation in the spiritual life. But that whole view of life is how the Jews in the Old Testament viewed life, not as we view life as Christians. And those in the Old Testament measured God's pleasure with material success, which is actually how God treated them because they were, they were children. They were immature in the spiritual life. But in the New Dispensation, in the New Testament, it's almost exactly opposite. The cross is the path to God. And many of the saints, when they were without sufferings, they would wonder, is God mad at me that he's not sending a cross in my life? So the cross is seen by the, by the follower of the crucified as God's greatest gift. That is God's greatest gift. That is how he treats his friends, because that's how he treated his son. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila said that's why he has so few friends, because the way he treats them. But God wants us to become a saint. He loves us so much. He wants what is truly best for us, so that he, and therefore he will allow in our life many, many crosses. In fact, he will send us sufferings in order to purify us and detach us from this world and from ourselves. If you, when you love someone, you want what is truly best for them. And that is tough love, but you truly love that person. Even if you cause pain, if it's a necessary pain, like a doctor, sometimes you have to uh, cause some pain in order to heal some, someone. And on this note, I wanted to quote uh, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, a Christian writer, in, in, the, in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts 
and our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. And so therefore, we should thank God when he sends crosses to us. Because if the initiative were left entirely to us, we would always take the line of least resistance, which would not be good for our souls. If we waited uh, until we felt like doing something, we would hardly do anything in the spiritual life. And God knows our instinctive repugnance for sacrifice and how difficult and contrary to our nature is. And therefore, in his goodness, he makes provision for us by sending or permitting suffering in our life. We need that. Um, and we, 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 there's so many crosses in our life. Everyone has some crosses. There's big ones and small ones. Many of our crosses come to us uh, walking on two feet and the person of our neighbor rubs us the wrong way. But usually we don't have to construct artificial crosses to die. And they're all over the place, but we have to patiently bear them. Again, over and over again, we have to remind ourselves that life is supposed to be a cross, supposed to be a cross for the purification of our soul. Uh, sometimes I tell people, they recount all their trials and, and uh, tribulations, and I say, well, life stinks. It's meant to stink. It's not supposed to go all well. Uh, it's not supposed to be a never-ending hunt for pleasure and gratification. Everything should go our way. Life is meant to be purgatory. Um, of course, we, God uh, gives us consolations as well, and there's much happiness and joy, as there can be happiness and joy in suffering. But there has to be some suffering in this life. It, it, it's not, life is not going all wrong when, when you have a trial. That's when it's going right. Literally, life is meant to be a passion, a passion patiently born. Look at the word itself, uh, the passion of Christ. The word passion implies passive suffering to be acted upon by life's circumstances. To be acted upon by divine providence. More, see, our Lord, when he suffered, it wasn't that he went out to scourge himself. He allowed providence. He allowed uh, the will of, of his neighbor to act upon him. They were instruments of divine providence in his life. But they act upon him, and he was patiently bearing what providence was sending him. What even the ill will God used, perhaps their 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 sins, they, he turned it for something good, but our Lord abandoned himself to divine providence, and that's what passion means. It is passive suffering. Uh, passion and patience come from the same root word of passive uh, suffering. And I remember St. Benedict, in his holy rule, he has a line that always stood out uh, to me as very enlightening. He said, it is by patience that we share in the sufferings of Christ. I think this is such an important point uh, the importance of passive suffering, of, of, of abandoning ourselves to anything that divine providence sends us. And I firmly believe that this is really nine-tenths of sanctity. We have to do our part, but we have to let God do his part. And he, he's the principal actor in our sanctification. And that's something that we have to deal with uh, more deeply in a whole other show. I, I love the topic of divine providence and the sacrament of the present moment that God is continually working uh, on us uh, constantly by everything outside of us and even everything inside of us, they're instruments. Um, but 
to be holy, we can pretty much sum up this in, in one line. We must do what God wants, and we must want what God does. And God does a lot to us. He allows a lot to happen to us. Um, you know, the active side of union with God is you have to be obedient to God's commandments and inspirations and faithful to uh, the duties of your state and life. But the passive side is very important, too, for, for attaining sanctity. It's two co- sides of one coin. And the passive side is the acceptance of everything that God does to us or allows to happen to us uh, by, by loving abandonment to divine providence, wanting what he wants. Uh, um, of course, doing what we uh, the best we can, but if accepting God's will for us. And too often we fail in trust, we we fail in confidence, we fail to be putty in His hands, and therefore the cross doesn't sanctify us as it should. It sanctifies us when it's patiently born, when we accept it. And you know, often we suffer uh, various trials and troubles. Uh, interior ones and physical ones, and we think that most of them are good for us. Uh, But we don't get the big picture. God does. We still think cares about our temporal success and physical well-being. He doesn't. He cares about your soul. He wants us to save our souls. And uh, since God is the most loving Father, and as any parent would do, sometimes he has to correct and cause some suffering. He has to punish in order to correct. Love doesn't mean to, to let the loved one do whatever he wants or, or she pleases. Love, uh, even at the cost of pain, uh, one who loves does what he or she can to correct and help the beloved, to bring it to perfection. Uh, and becoming perfect implies change, and change hurts. That's because love hurts. This is tough love. And and really, our concept of love needs correction more than anything. Like you said at the beginning of the show, God's love for us is not L-U-V love, as my abbot used to say. It's not L-U-V love, not hippie love. It is a burning charity that wants what is truly best, no matter what the cost is. He will turn the whole universe upside down if it means that he will bring you to sanctity. That's what's more important, that he will save a soul, that he will... He will make your whole life flip upside down if that's what it takes to bring you back to him. Uh, so when we rebel against God for allowing sufferings into our life, when we pray that he be more loving and more kind to us, what we're actually asking for is not more love, but less love. Don't love me so much, Lord. Don't send too many crosses if, and we're asking for less love. And But we have to be assured that There is not a single thing in our life or in our circumstances which is left to chance. Not a single event that God does not supervise with his fatherly providence. God weighs all of our crosses. And God is not looking for perfection outside of us. This is something, again, we have to keep reminding ourselves. This is a lesson we have to learn over and over. uh, That God is not looking for perfection outside of us as much as the interior perfection of our soul. And that's the only achievement we exist for, is sanctity, not success in some external work, however spiritual it may be, or to, or to please anyone else except God. That is, that is the purpose of life. And God's ways are not our, our ways. And usually, His ways seem strange to us, and He likes to take us by paths that we least expect, uh, in, in ways which appear to us 
and our limited understanding is taking us away from him sometimes. And he allows us to be in circumstances and to suffer things which we think to be absolutely disastrous for our spiritual life. But he knows infinitely better than we do what is truly good, good for us. He chastises, God chastises those whom he loves. That is from Scripture. So the cross, it often looks like the cross is the thing uh, uh, getting in the way. That we can't fit the cross into what we thought a happy spiritual life was supposed to be. But the cross is the way to obtain sanctity. Uh, we often think, if only I could be cured of this sickness I have, this ailment, uh, I would lead a fervent spiritual life. I could pray longer and do all these things. If only this difficulty did not come up right now. It's getting in my way of union with Christ. And we say, anything, O oh Lord, but, but this one. Anything but this cross. Could I trade this cross in for some other one? And this is the key. The cross will always feel like it doesn't fit. And that, and it will always feel like we're dislocated when we're when we are nailed to it, it's just like our Lord's cross didn't fit him. He had to be stretched upon it. Now, so often we imagine that we would willingly carry any cross for God, but when one comes our way, we rebel at it. We we rebel. Uh, we we don't want a cross that actually crosses us. We don't want a burden that actually burdens us or a trial that tries us. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. The cross is supposed to cross you. It's not supposed to feel good. It's supposed to stretch you to God, to God's will. We always want to be able to pick our own crosses, and usually we're always picking the, the smooth and comfortable and you know marshmallowy crosses that are light and cozy. And this is why God has to step in, because He knows what we need more than anything. And our crosses, our vocation, our state in life, and duties, our infirmities and sickness, our jobs. Anything, any vicissitude in our life, we have to suffer. But God is in control. He has to step in and send us crosses. And sometimes that cross is failure. Father Lean has a beautiful chapter in his book, In the Likeness of Christ, called The Triumph of Failure. I wish everyone could read that chapter. That failure is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Sometimes that's the best thing. And we look at even our Lord's life, the apparent failure of the cross was was the triumph was the end. Now, we're running out of time, but I, I need to cover a few other points uh, briefly. Uh, this, all this uh, talk of the cross applies to spiritual life as well. Um, that the cross is not just physical suffering, but sometimes interior sufferings. That the, the interior trials of aridity, aridity and temptations, all those things are not necessarily bad signs. And, and, and they're not necessarily infallible signs that something is wrong. In fact, it is often those very things which we take to be signs of unprogress that are actually signs of real fervor and solid progress. Uh, and this is a, another show I'll talk about some of these these, these um, unexpected signs of progress. Um, the more we advance uh, in holiness, sometimes we feel like we're retreating and getting worse, uh, but it's not the case. And so that cross... Uh, appears even in our spiritual life. Another point I want to bring up is that one of the most consoling and uh, potentially life-changing truths of the spiritual life is, is based on the words of our Savior. He said, Be not therefore solicitous for tomorrow, for the morrow will be solicitous for itself. 
Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. And so often we live much of our life in the past or the future, and we try to carry crosses that we are not meant to carry right here and right now. We are not only solicitous for tomorrow, we're solicitous for yesterday as well. And so the uncontrolled memory and imagination are responsible for unnecessary uh, uh, disturbance and unrest in our soul. And for some strange reason, we like to brood over and relive all the painful experience of the past. We often let our imagination run wild. We blow past events way out of proportion sometimes. We also like to pre-live all the painful experience that may happen in the future, which hardly ever happen as we imagine them. And the shadow of the cross looms often much larger than the actual cross that we are called upon to carry. But the, our weakness is such that we can only bear the cross of the present day, the present hour and the present moment. And if we are truly honest with ourselves and look, and, and, and look upon things objectively, the actual amount of suffering that we are called to carry upon carry at this very moment. Like right now, you're just listening to me. I know it's a big cross. But at the, this very moment, the cross is much smaller than our imagination often leads us to believe. Uh, if only we lived in the present, we would be able to carry with greater peace of soul uh, even the, any cross that comes our way. Uh, we cannot carry tomorrow's cross with today's grace. God does not give you strength to carry tomorrow's cross, only today's. And if you carry this hour's uh, and this day's cross, then you will gain the grace to carry the next. So before I have to wrap up this talk, there's two more points that I have to bring up. Ultimately, why must we suffer? Ultimately, I think the deepest answer, perhaps it's a little mystical, but I think that we suffer because the passion is not finished yet. You know, the passion is not just an historical event. It is happening. So mystically, Christ is on the cross until the end of time. And what I mean by that is that the Christian is called to, and when I say Christian, I mean Catholic, interchangeably, that the Catholic is called to mystically real, relive the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ in his own daily life. Like I said, for a Catholic, the faith is alive. It's a living faith. Listen to these words of St. Paul, words that explain, I think, so much in our own life and give deep meaning for our own sufferings. St. Paul writes, I rejoice now in the sufferings I bear for your sake. I fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ for his body, which is the church. I think that is the key. That, that is um, the, the purpose to our own personal sufferings and sacrifices. It's the doctrine of the mystical body. I think, you know, obviously in the order of time, Christ suffers no more. In his personal humanity, he can no longer suffer pain. But we, his mystical body, can. And the sufferings of our head, our mystical head, our Lord Jesus Christ, they're complete and perfect. Our Lord is now glorified in heaven, and, and he has suffered more than enough. But his mystical body still needs to finish its part of the passion, that we are included in the passion. We are intimately associated in the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are building up his mystical body. What we do, our meritorious actions, obtain grace for the other members of the mystical body. And actual grace is for those outside, 
in order for them to be joined to the mystical body. And this doctrine is so closely associated with the communion of saints. We are, as it were, other Christs, other miniature saviors. And this is not merely the vocation of priests and religious, but of every Christian. We're we're called to, to imitate Christ. But the imitation of Christ is not something which is merely done externally by reproducing his virtues. You know, Christ did. He walked in Palestine. I'm going to walk in Palestine. He, he wore this clothes. I'm going to follow that. That's not it. It is reproducing his virtues and characteristics. But it's more than that. We imitate Christ in order to mystically continue him throughout time to prolong the incarnation and the redemption to prolong his life into ours, to build up and complete the whole mystical Christ. And the mystical Christ incorporates our Lord and us. Head and members form one mystical person. And our sufferings, no matter how tiny or obscure, have profound meaning and value when united with his. They actually save souls. It is certain the faithful on earth by their good works, when performed in the state of grace, they render atonement for one another's sins. And that is why Catholics, why we do penance uh, for the sins of others, why we make reparation for our own sins, because it actually has value and united in union with our Lord's sacrifice. No suffering is too small that has no value. When we unite it with our Lord, it becomes so valuable to God and the souls. And to each of us, our Lord pleads, will you give me your humanity? Bishop Sheen used to say this a lot. This is what our Lord is saying to us. Will you give me your humanity? You know, I can no longer suffer, but you can. I need you. I want to continue my passion in you. I want to continue to save souls through you, to suffer, to pray, to work, and to glorify and love my Father through you and through your life. One short life is not enough for me. I need your body for physical sufferings and your soul for spiritual suffering. Put me in place of your will in such a way that I may act in you and by you. When you work, I work by you. And when you rest, I rest in you. And when you suffer, I suffer in you. In a word, you must no longer live to yourself, but let me live in you. Give me your heart. Give me your generous love. Give me their sufferings. Sinners need you. And I need you. And this is what our Lord is saying to us. This is, this is really what he has appeared to the saints. He wants their sufferings to be united to his, to make reparation. And one last point. We're running out of time here. That passion, and particularly in his agony, our Lord saw all of our future free actions, all that we would choose to do for him or against him, all of our sins, all of our neglect, but also all of our acts of virtue, all of our acts of self-denial and prayer and piety, every act of love for him, he saw it. And though our Lord has appeared to many of the saints uh, clothed in sorrow, sometimes he appears like he's scourged for the suffering uh, and suffering for the sins of the present day, we know that he can, he can no longer suffer because he has gloriously risen from the dead. But what we do not sufficiently realize is that what we do now had a direct effect upon him then. 
and all our acts were present to him, present to his heart during his passion, and we can truly afflict him by our sins right now. Or we can console and alleviate him in his agony and suffering by the acts of love and reparation that we do right now. And every time we sin, it is as though we were scourging him or crowning him with that crown of thorns or nailing his hands and feet. And we mustn't think that, oh, well, our Lord already suffered. It's over. How can one more sin increase uh, you know, our Lord's sufferings in the past? We have to remember that God is not in time. He is eternal. God sees us right now, and right now he also sees Christ on the cross. It is as though both are happening at the same time. So the passion is, as it were, still going on. And our actions that we do right now are eternally what we have made them in God's sight. That's a scary thought, that God will see that action for all eternity. And that will afflict our Lord. So what part are we playing in the passion? Are we afflicting him right now? Are we making him suffering, suffer? Or are we being comforting angels to his agonizing heart? This is a reality. Our Lord saw us from the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw us from the cross. He knew us. He knew that we would one day be listening to this radio show. And then I would be speaking about him right now. And that we we would be thinking about him right now, hearing these words about his passion. He saw that. And that is why we must never be tired of telling him how much we love him. He has heard your prayer when he was on the cross. And he feels your acts of love and confidence in, in him. And they give him strength and consolation. And we can almost say, we can almost use the present tense. He is hearing you. He is seeing you right now. And therefore, Let us be comforting angels for the suffering Christ. Compassionate him right now, and he will feel it. Help him to carry his cross. And if you help him, he will give you a share in his glory. And he will one day say to you, I was carrying my cross, and you helped me. Think of that thought. I want to part with that, uh, end with that thought, that he sees us right now, and he sees and he feels When we say, Jesus, I love you with all my heart, I repent of my sins, he will see that and feel that, and it will give him strength. And that's all I have to say. All right, well, well, thank you for that thought. Thank you for that, Father. That's a a powerful thought to end our show with, and uh, I know for I, for one, that's... uh, Definitely something to meditate on uh, for for Lent and for life, really. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, thank you for uh, for all, all your preparation for the show and for joining us again on the Spiritual Life, Father. Um, to our, our listeners, uh, uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, uh, Father Bernard, I mentioned, is my pastor at Our Lady of Victory Church. Uh, he's also a Benedictine priest. Uh, and he's um, trying to start up a, a new foundation uh, for now, uh, temporarily in Our Lady Victory Church, but hopefully, uh, with the help of benefactors, eventually somewhere nearby in a, in a proper monastery. Given that uh, uh, mm-hmm. his old abbey, Christ the King Abbey, doesn't uh, exist anymore, 
So I I would encourage uh, listeners, um, although we're, we solicit donations to help with the work of uh, Restoration Radio, I certainly would ask listeners to consider, uh, if you're able to, a, a donation to a Father's uh, fledgling uh, Benedictine uh, monastery. And in fact, uh, this very week, uh, he'll be uh, taking on the first uh, postulant will be taking up residence at the church with Father Bernard uh, with the possibility of a second uh, in the the near future. So uh, things are uh, definitely happening. And um, if you are able to uh, assist Father, or also if you have other questions for him or want to contact him, the uh, mailing address is Our Lady of Victory Church. 1715 Dundas Street East, London, Ontario, Canada. And the postal code is N5W3E1. So again, that's Our Lady of Victory Church, 1715 Dundas Street East, London, Ontario, Canada, N5W3E1. And um, our next episode of The Spiritual Life will be broadcast on Easter Sunday, as Father mentioned, so that's the 20th of April of this year, and uh, we hope you'll uh, join us for that. Uh, Coming up in the closer uh, future on Restoration Radio, uh, this week on Thursday, we'll have episode three of Francis Watch, with the uh, subtitle this month of Bishops Do Not Need to Be Guardians of Doctrine which is the uh, most recent uh, uh, pearl to come from uh, the uh, current uh, claimant to the papal throne. And uh, also uh, this week on Friday, there will be the third episode of the Summas. So uh, definitely some uh, uh, interesting things that I encourage listeners to uh, to check out. So, uh, Father, again... Uh, Thank you uh, for joining us and for uh, another very uh, beneficial and efficacious show on the spiritual life. You're welcome. And I'd like to also just thank uh, all the help and support of uh, our listeners. I really appreciate their support. Thanks again, Father. So uh, uh, please uh, be sure to visit audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio and take advantage of the free 30-day risk-free trial and a free audiobook from the best audiobook website on the Internet run by Amazon.com. And you can find a link to this in our show notes section. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you find this show to be of value to you and your Catholic faith, that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, I want to express our very sincere, heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. Uh, the the network does have quite a lot of expenses uh, from running a website to just renting the airtime from uh, Blog Talk Radio, and uh, so your donations do definitely go to good use and are uh, very much appreciated. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you, uh, and I think they... Uh, can make for uh, great additions to our shows. Uh, I think uh, I thank our uh, 
listener who posted to Facebook uh, for the good question that led to the first part of uh, today's show. Um, so you can post to Facebook or uh, you can leave us a message on our Twitter handle at True Restoration or you can email us at spirituallife at truerestoration.org. That's spirituallife, all one word, at truerestoration.org. And we want to remind you that The Spiritual Life is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. 